You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Dr. Paul Madrell of the University of Aberystwyth in Wales, the United Kingdom. Uh, Paul is an expert on the Stasi, the East German Communist Intelligence Service, and he's also the author of a, uh, an important book, Spying on Science, Western Intelligence in Divided Germany, 1945 to 1961. Uh, Paul has been working a lot in the Stasi archives, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that today, what we can actually learn about uh, the operations of intelligence services in, in East Germany from the documents of the day. Uh, so, Paul, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here, and what a fine museum it is. Well, thank you. Uh, we, we like it. Um, first off, can you just tell us a little bit about what the Stasi was? What was this organization? Stasi stands for Ministerium für Staatssicherheit, Ministry of State Security, which is just a German translation of the name of the Russian State Security Ministry when it was created at the beginning of the 1950s. Ministerstva Gosudarstvene Bezapastnosti, Ministry of State Security. So they just created a German clone originally of the Soviet State Security Ministry, which was a vicious political police force, which went around arresting and interrogating and incarcerating political opponents of the regime, including spies. So they have a very large archive of uh, records on Western spies, spies of the major Western secret services. So we uh, we remember the Stasi particularly in the West about its sort of surveillance of, of, of East German normal citizens, uh, most famously portrayed in the movie The Lives of Others. But they really were engaged in a genuine, no kidding, counter-espionage mission against real genuine spies from the West as well. Certainly. Uh, they were a remarkable counterintelligence service. They were completely unique in the Soviet bloc. The counterintelligence service of the Stasi was the only Soviet bloc counterintelligence service that operated outside the GDR. It was also a foreign intelligence service. In the case of all the other Soviet bloc security services, the collection of counterintelligence, which is information on the intelligence services of other states, was a job for the foreign intelligence service. So in the KGB's case, it was a job for the first chief directorate, its foreign intelligence service, not for the second chief directorate, for the internal security service. But the Stasi, because it was part of a divided country, was very, very menaced by espionage. It was very, very easy for the West to recruit good East German spies. If you were a West German, 
you could have an East German brother and you'd go and visit him and you could recruit him. It was very, very easy. And that option did not exist in, in let's say, American-Soviet relations. So it was very easy to recruit spies. So they had a remarkable counterintelligence service and it's arguable that their counterintelligence service was the most successful there's ever been. So as a result of the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the reunification of Germany, uh, at least some portions of these records of the Stasi, which I understand to have been really, really extensive, are now open to researchers. Can you talk a little bit about what is available and isn't available to historians uh, like you? Well, Germany was reunited in 1990, as you know. The German parliament immediately passed a very radical law on the Stasi records, the law on the Stasi records called the Stasi Unterlagen Gesetz. And basically they took the pre free, a principle of freedom of information, which is an American principle. Of course, in 1965, the Americans passed the Freedom of Information Act. But the Germans applied that to state security information, which is a very radical thing to do. Um, the Stasi Unterlagen Gesetz incorporates principles of data protection and freedom of information. So the general rule is disclosure, but it's only disclosed the information to particular types of reader. Thus, if you're a victim, a betroffener, someone on whom the Stasi collected information, if you have a file, then you'll get ev the entire file. They won't keep anything from you. You have a legal right to receive the entire file. If you're a historian or a journalist, uh, as we are, uh, then we won't get that. We won't get the whole of your file because that will contain very intimate information about you. We have to, in my case, and, and all other historians and all journalists, we have to write an application to see records. That application has to be approved. It has to be on the history of the Stasi. And if it is approved, we will then receive information from which all personal information has been removed. Uh, so, uh, and, and that is true really in cases all people. We won't get personal information on any people unless they fall into specific categories. The specific categories are basically very famous people. So if we, you know, application like, say, Joseph Stalin, if we wanted Stasi records on Joseph Stalin, he's so famous we would get them. Or Helmut Kohl, a very famous one. Or people who work for the ministry itself in some cases. And, um, or if they're well known for, on, on other grounds. So you can get some spies, information on some spies. So you, as I understand it then, have been mining these records specifically recently at any rate to understand the operations of the Western intelligence services in East Germany. Uh, and, I, and as I understand it, in particular looking at economic or what we might call economic and also science and technology uh, intelligence collection by the CIA, uh, British MI6, uh, the West German BND. Um, can you give us some sense of how extensive were the espionage operations of these various Western agencies in East Germany, at least as far as we can tell from the Stasi records? Well, what we can see from the Stasi records is that they were very extensive indeed. Indeed, human intelligence from spies was clearly seen by the Western states at that time as a major source of information on which to base their policy. And they conducted uh, operations which were for peacetime unprecedented in their extent. Their espionage was very, very substantial. So well, we know that the Stasi, at the direction of the KGB, carried out between 1953 and 1955 the biggest arrest operations of spies and resistance fighters to be carried out anywhere in the Soviet bloc during the Cold War. And they gave them the very simple name of the Gors Aktionen, the big operations. And uh, in those two years, about 990 spies were arrested, we believe. Uh, these records that I've been using actually start just after that. 
and probably represented part of a reform effort on the part of the Stasi to improve its work. What period of time do, do the records you're working with cover? They roughly? run from October 1955 uh, to October 1989. So all the way to the very end then of, of, uh, uh, of East Germany, or almost to the very end of East the Germany. The last report is dated the 9th of November 1989, which is when the Berlin Wall was opened. And these, spy, uh, these records reveal more than 1,000, more than 1,300 further spies, usually of major Western uh, secret services. And they're dominated above all by agents of the West German secret services and the American secret services. So the British were rather less uh, active in East Germany. The British were very active in the 50s, but after 1961, they were not. Uh, the reason was probably that they suffered dreadfully at the Stasi's hands, or really at the KGB's hands. They were penetrated by George Blake, and he was in Berlin, so he uh, revealed their spies in the GDR. But also it must have been that they reached an agreement with the CIA and BND that the BND and CIA would cover the GDR, and the British moved elsewhere. That may, there must have been some kind of agreement of that kind. The French, likewise, it greatly diminishes thereafter. But the Americans go through to the end. I mean, I, one of the things I learned from these records is just how hard U.S. intelligence fought the communist bloc. What do you mean by that? Well, they're, they're, the, the Americans are the most important in the 1950s. That doesn't mean they necessarily lose more spies, but the BND was their creation anyway. It was reporting to them, and, and the Americans got all its intelligence. And the BND was not only an intelligence service, it was used really to run a resistance campaign fought by very violent resistance organizations. and the, In East Germany, you mean? In East Germany. And really the Galen organization, later the Bundesnachrichtendienst, or BND, was the Americans' instrument for maintaining contact, or one of the Americans' instruments for maintaining contact with those resistance organizations. They had their own as well. But the whole thing was really run, uh, run by the United States and above all paid for by the United States. The thing that really distinguishes the Americans from everybody else is they have far more money. And you can see that in these records. So of these roughly 1,300 or something over 1,300 cases that you've been looking at from 1955 to 1989, um, uh, are the majority of those economic or science and technology? Or what, what proportion of that roughly uh, falls into that category versus, say, um, perhaps targeting military or political information in East Germany? A clear majority are gathering intelligence on military installations, military movements, and they're pretty low-level spies. Uh, they are the dominant source of the Americans and the Bundesnachrichtendienst, particularly the Bundesnachrichtendienst. Um, but clearly the U.S. military intelligence services also ran those sources throughout the Cold War. Uh, then thereafter, there are spies of many kinds, really very varied, and particularly varied on the American side, and that shows the importance of their money, because the British basically have some very good sources there, but the British really only have sources of two kinds. They have very high-grade political and economic intelligence sources, really very good sources, and low-level military spies, but they have nothing else, because they didn't have the money, one assumes, to go for that range of spies, because, of course, many spies might produce nothing, and if you're not going to produce much, in the British case, they will not invest in you. It's just a waste of time, whereas the Americans can afford to do that if you're a low-performing spy, and they've got people who are were clearly you know, not much of a good investment of time. What one notices about the Americans is they have... Uh, an extraordinary feature, the Bundesnachrichtendienst also has it, but much less, which is they recruit medical and, you know, personnel, but I mean medical personnel in the broadest sense, doctors, dentists, even masseurs, 
because people will often relax when they're with a doctor or a dentist and tell them things they don't tell other people. Uh, or even a masseuse, there's a masseuse in there who's very, very interesting. And the CI told her, we want people, when you're massaging uh, them, and when they open up and when they relax, and of course you relax when you're being massaged, you relax physically and you relax emotionally as well. That's what it's for. <laughs> that's what it's for. That's exactly what it's for. And if you say you, if they tell you they hate communism, we want to know more about that person. You have to give us those person's details. And of course the British would not invest in such a source because she might come up with nobody in ten years. She might come up with absolutely nobody. But the Americans have you know the money and the personnel to to do that. So they're very varied their sources. So. We were talking uh, before we uh, we turned on the tapes here uh, that the Americans actually had some fairly important cases that were some pretty major successes. Um, can you highlight one or two of those for us? What that that we probably don't know anything about this from the American side of the records, but that we can now learn about through access to these German files. Yes, running human sources is a brutal business. Um, the person in question, Maple, in in the communist bloc, very often die. Uh, when when he or she is revealed, not necessarily. We'll talk about that at the end, but yes, go ahead. Or will disappear for a very long time into prison. Uh, so it's a fairly brutal business. So the basically the service running them will often forget them or have nothing more to do with them, and there will there will be no recollection on the American side or in the United States generally uh, about of these people. And very often the CIA will want to keep information about them secret because that's their deal with these people. So the United States will have no recollection of these people, even though they regarded themselves as fighting, in a sense, for the United States. Whereas, of course, the country that they are lost in will very much remember them because they are a kind of resistance fighter there. So there is the strange phenomenon that these people are were quite important, really, in a sense, certainly to the CIA, and yet the CIA doesn't publish anything about them, and yet they, there is information on them. In the case of one of these people, Adolf Henning Frucht, his wife published a book, Briefe aus Bautzen, Letters from Bautzen. He wasn't actually executed. He was a professor and clearly a very talented man, very able man, and doing important research for the GDR. And he was uh, imprisoned in Bautzen, which was the most brutal of the GDR's prisons. And his letters to his wife will have been published. And for that reason, because they've been published, I have received the records on him in named form. I.e., you were able to identify that these Stasi records are actually about him. They exactly. Were, because his wife had outed his name, if you will. The, yes. The Stasi, would give you, the Stasi holders would give you relatively unredacted records about him. Well, exactly. Uh, because what they would say, the information is already known. In actual fact, the information they release goes beyond what is already known. Because what his wife did not say was that he was a student in the United States in the 1930s and spied for a German intelligence service in the United States. It was a sign, of course, she was not going to say he was spying for the Sicherheitsdienst or Abwehr. The Nazi so for, for the Nazis uh, here in the United States. But that's what it's here, here in, in, in his record. That's what he confessed to in front of the Stasi. Um, so it, it actually goes beyond that. But it is very, he's a very, very interesting case. And he was d working on... Um, chemical research and military related chemical research so including chemical weapons and vaccination against chemical weapons and of course this is very important to NATO because NATO feared the use of chemical weapons in any war in Europe so Americans would die if they fought the Soviets the, the Warsaw Pact in a war and therefore they wanted to know about vaccination and that's what is uh, that's what is uh, what is uh, referred to here it's and they even refer to um, documents that they confiscated when they searched his home so it says that the, he was um, arrested in 1967 
and uh, the, the report says that they um, found on him in his home a uh, an instruction from the CIA uh, of December 1966 to gather information about vaccination and also about psychological psychiatric drugs, like psych- psychotropic drugs, like LSD kinds of things. Well, it says Suko Gifter, but I, I think that's precisely what they do mean. Um, and what is interesting, of course, is that this is exactly the period when the CIA was experimenting with LSD and other such drugs in the United States. So it's a very plausible statement, and it's a very unusual statement to make. One wouldn't expect someone working on military research, which is what he was doing, um, to uh, to be able to report on psychiatric drugs and so on. But that's exactly what he was uh, what he was told to do. That's a remarkable remarkable story. Um, so now I understand then that often uh, East German intelligence, the Stasi, would get information that various East Germans were spying for the West, uh, but this information wouldn't be legally admissible in court because even East Germany actually did have laws, um, or or, uh, revealing this information would reveal sensitive intelligence sources and methods. So, but at the same time, presumably they'd want to prosecute these people. So, what solution did the Stasi come for this? Uh, how do you prosecute people about whom you know only secret uh, information proving their guilt? Well, of course, that that problem faces all security services everywhere, and they all try and overcome it in particular ways. I mean, the CIA's case, of course, since since the Ames case, they've had the benefit of the death penalty, and they will just say to someone, you know, Robert Hansen, confess to what we advise you to confess to or we will press for the death penalty and they can that's a way of aiding a confession but that's a way of controlling the information flow to a court well the Stasi faced exactly the same problem as you say the Stasi the GDR had a constitution it had laws therefore interception of post was in fact illegal Uh, interception of mail that was actually illegal Uh, they did not want to reveal the extent of their surveillance either and East Berlin was very close to West Berlin and West Germany, and the, and the Stasi's counterintelligence service was a foreign intelligence service as well. And what they were very good at, West Germany being just over the border, was placing foreign targets in West Berlin and West Germany under surveillance on counterintelligence grounds. They were very, very good at that. And, of course, they did not want to reveal to anybody, even their own courts, their success in doing that. Sometimes they even went beyond that and managed to penetrate a hostile service. So I've got British intelligence or records on British intelligence operations, and it is highly likely that the information in those records or that led to those investigations came from George Blake, a KGB spy, and the KGB gave the information. So they knew full well who Blake's sources were, and, and that's why they arrested them. But of course, they would never reveal, even to a GDR court, that a foreign penetration agent run by the KGB had provided this information. So what the Stasi did is had its own division, and the job of that division, which was called Line 9, the ninth line in the Stasi, very close to the minister, Erich Mielke, was to do the whole investigation again. It had, of course, all the intelligence obtained by counterintelligence. So it knew where it was going. It knew where it was going, and it knew, and it always therefore arrested the person concerned. It was convinced of his guilt. So it arrested, and of course it was very useful. What they would often find in the case of Frucht, for example, they had there a written instruction from the CIA, or an instruction that Frucht had written down. So they, what I assume they did is they just presented him with it and said, this is very interesting that you've been told to collect information on you know, psychotropic drugs and so on. Uh, would you please tell us more about 
like that. It basically had him. And if they found a radio, as they very often did, or if uh, it found invisible ink or um, um, your microdot and so on, a microdot equipment, well, this is so incriminating, the spy could really not dispute it. So the spy would rapidly confess. Um, and they'd generally arrest his wife as well, uh, the, t the two of them, and, and uh, interrogate them separately, and then they'd compare the confessions. The wife would usually have knowledge of her of what her husband was doing, because the, the husband would find it psychologically very hard to bear if someone didn't know. Uh, so they would work on them both together. The aim of the investigation was to generate enough evidence for them to convict in front of a court uh, with no revelation of secret methods of, uh, of intelligence collection and no danger whatsoever that the spy would retract his confession. So they, w they were reluctant to rely only on a confession because then the spy could retract it and then they'd be horribly embarrassed in front of the court. Uh, so they would want other evidence as well, generally physical evidence. So of these 1,300 or more cases from 55 to 89 that you, you've looked at, they're, if I understand correctly, from this line nine that was doing these investigations to, to, to put together cases for prosecution. Yes. It's probably hard to know for 100% certainty from where you stand, where we stand, but is it your impression that these 1,300 or so probably really were all spies uh, or that the Stasi really was sort of on the right track here? I mean, the, the, the reputation that the Stasi has in sort of the, the, the public eye is they're surveilling everyone, they're oppressing everyone, they're seeing spies under every bed. But were these 1,300 or so really actually spies, near as you can tell, the, the majority of them? That's a very important question. Uh, and my conclusion is that most of these records are largely reliable. The, you can't say with 100% certainty that they all are, but the Stasi tried very hard to find out what the real situation was. Of course, the prosecution was a different kettle of fish. Uh, you know, they would prosecute almost anybody for spying. If you were a minor resistance fighter, that was generally serving the interests of the West, and they would throw in you know, espionage at you as part of the prosecution. But uh, internally, they tried to find out what the real situation was. The records still have to be handled with a little care. In the first place, the spy himself had an incentive not to confess to the full truth to minimize what he was doing. Of course, the, this is one of the reasons they were so keen to uh, question the wife. It was one of the reasons they were so keen to obtain physical uh, evidence of guilt, because then it would give them an idea of what he'd been doing and how long he'd been doing it for. Uh, there's one case in the reports, which I think is an identifiable case, and he says he only spied for the CIA for a very short period of time. The likelihood is he spied for a much longer period of time, and that was the Stasi's conclusion. Therefore, there is an element of unreliability in the reports, but introduced by the spy. I can't find the Stasi itself was willing to tolerate mistakes. It was very cruel, and this is one of the most cruel divisions in the entire ministry. Um, they were interrogating, and they knew they were interrogating people whom they would put to death. Indeed, in the case of one, uh, uh, the interrogator said after the spy's confession, your noggin will roll, you'll be guillotined. They knew full well what they were doing. They were very cruel people, but they didn't want to make mistakes, at least internally. Therefore, I think the records are largely reliable. The guillotine spies... That's interesting. Why, why that method of execution? They never bothered to change it. It was the Nazis' method of execution, and they just continued with it thereafter. It wasn't a universal practice, but it was the standard means by which spies and resistance fighters were killed in the GDR 
up to the abolition of the death penalty in the early 1970s. And most of these cases are in the 1950s. Uh, thereafter, it's, they did kill people still, but only Stasi traitors, and they were, they were shot. And at the very end of the GDR's life, um, the very last cases of someone who wasn't even told he was going to be shot. He was just taken for a walk in the prison, and the executioner lay in wait with a revolver and just shot him as he went by. In the back of the head. In the back of the neck. The, but the, in some cases, they, they were not guillotined. Some of the uh, interesting cases here, uh, Karl Hansel and Fritz Fehrmann, they were traitors within the Stasi itself. Or so Hansel. Stasi officers. Well, he had been one. He okay. wasn't a Stasi officer at the time of, of, of his uh, arrest. He was director of security of a factory, and Fritz Fehrmann was an Oberkommissar, so a, a high official, in the police, in the Volkspolizei, and they were not guillotined. Um, Hansel was shot uh, by firing squad, and Fehrmann was shot in the back of the neck, the NKVD, the Russian method of execution. It's probable the reason for the, this, this divergence uh, from guillotining is that they came from the security system itself, and therefore they were going to make an example of them. Um, but the, the, uh, those, are, those are exceptional cases. The, the standard method was guillotining. So a very famous case though, is, is, is that of the Prime Minister of the GDR's secretary, Ellie Barjatis. She's a very well-known spy, not an American spy. And uh, she was a, a middle-aged woman. Do woman we know who she was working for? Uh, she was working for the Bundesnachrichtendienst. Okay, uh, her husband, uh, sorry, her boyfriend, Karl Lorenz, uh, he originally made contact with the Americans, but he went over to the Bundesnachrichtendienst. Of course, you can't really separate the Americans and the Bundesnachrichtendienst at this time, um, but uh, they were guillotined in the st standard way. You mentioned to me a while back uh, that the the East Germans even kept detailed records uh, and surveillance on prisoners while they were on death row and then kept very detailed records of the executions themselves. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because when when you told me about this, it really struck me that that uh, that this really uh, just epitomized the, the just utter bestial cruelty in a lot of ways of, of not only this service but of the society that it represented. That's true. It was very cruel, but it was cruel in a very common fashion. All the 20th century dictatorships, totalitarian systems, in, they kept detailed records of their crimes, of their cruelties. They did not, in fact seek to distance themselves from it by you know, making no records at all. You know, in Stalin's terror, we have lots of records of the horrific persecutions of that time. Um, likewise, had they not destroyed them, there were plenty of records of the Nazis' Holocaust and so on. They destroyed a very large part of those records, but they kept them. Uh, the Stasi is just the same. It is a very careful bureaucracy, and that's one of the reasons why it lasts. It didn't last for that long a period of time. But the people had a sense, the people who ran the system had a sense that they were taking part in an ordered system of government and repression. And they were cruel. Whether they were crueler than most people, I'm not sure. But they were, these were certainly very, very cruel people. Um, but they, they, they recorded what they were doing very, very carefully, right up to the very death of the spy. Um, so all the, they, they would record, the spy would be convicted, uh, there would be the court judgment sentencing the spy to death. The spy would usually then appeal to the GDR's president for clemency, uh, and that document will be recorded in the, in the Stasi file as well. The president would usually refuse. Um, 
and you, that document will be there as well. In some cases, and, and in some Hansel, whom I've just mentioned, the CIA source, the case would be regarded as so sensitive it would go to the SED Politburo, the highest. The SED being the, the, the East German Communist Party, basically. The, the SED the, was the East German Communist Party, so it was the ruling party, and the Politburo was the supreme body, uh, so the most powerful people in the system. And uh, they would consider the most sensitive cases, and they would condemn the individual to death. So Walter Ulbricht, who was the GDR's leader, would preside at that meeting and say, no clemency. And Hansel is an example of that, because he came from the Stasi itself, so the Politburo considered it. Uh, so the, the GDR's own leaders were, were deciding who died. Um, and then they would rec- the, the execution was recorded meticulously, so it, it, would, it would say the hour of the morning. They were usually uh, killed in the early hours of the morning and, and, and died by guillotine and would say how long the execution lasted, you know, and in the case of guillotine, it lasts seconds. So it will say it lasted six seconds, the whole process lasts six seconds. Um, so everything was very carefully recorded right, right to the very end. And you mentioned to me that they would sometimes even bug the prison cells of the condemned men? That was later in the GDR's history. The, basically, they wanted to obtain as much information as they could that was usable or that would enable them to put pressure on the spy to confess. Um, or that, w- that would enable, that would prompt the spy to reveal further information. So what they, in the early days, they ran stool pigeons, so informers. The spy would be put into a cell, and he'd think that the person sharing the cell with him was another victim of the Stasi who was nice and friendly and pleasant and someone to talk to, but that person was an informer of the Stasi, and the information would be passed on. So anything he said that incriminated himself would go on to the Stasi, and then, of course, that would guide their investigation uh, and would guide their searches, um, so they, in the later years of the of the, the Judas life, they they would bug the cells. Not just that, they also bugged the rooms in which the accused met their lawyers. So anything that the the accused said to the lawyer would be would would would, would be intercepted. So you've got you've got uh, you've seen transcripts. I understand of people crying and praying and getting all distraught, as one might imagine, as they're waiting to be as they're in serious legal trouble or waiting to be executed. Yes, well, there's one very moving record, and his is a very well-known case, so I got it, and the name was on it. His name was Walter Linzer, and he was a resistance fighter, not a spy, but the Stasi regarded it very reasonably, regarded his organization as effectively an intelligence organization. It was a group of lawyers, the Untersuchungsausschuss Freiheitlicher Juristen, the Investigative Committee of Free Jurists, who were appalled at the nationalizations and seizures of property and so on in the GDR as it was communized, and they wanted to prepare for the restoration of this property or the restoration of liberty to people who were arrested on, for no reason at all when they were, when they were arrested and thrown into prison or executed for, for, for no good reason. They wanted to prepare for justice to be done, so property to be restored to the people or their liberty to be restored or for their names to be cleared after their, their execution. And indeed, ultimately, they wanted to prepare for a Nuremberg-style trial of the leaders of the GDR. So they were, they were really lawyers. And they ran their own intelligence network. They advised refugees... So if you were arrested in the GDR, you know, your wife would immediately flee to West Berlin and would say, my husband's been arrested for no reason at all. And they would, were lawyers, and they would go through it and would say, we believe this is illegal, un- unconstitutional even under the constitution of the GDR. So would advise her on that. And of course would obtain therefore information from her. So it was a kind of intelligence organization. Well, the Americans, the CIA saw the value of this. And the, the CIA had a relatively limited staff, necessarily, but saw that it had volunteer German assistants, and it could access the information 
of this organization. And that's what they did. And therefore they funded it and they obtained information from the organization. And Linzer ran the economic division. So the division that, 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 fly, that uh, investigated nationalizations and so on, and that was an, an awful lot of economic intelligence for the Americans. Well, the, obviously the KGB hated him and had the Stasi kidnap him. He was kidnapped in West Berlin and he was taken to East Berlin and the Stasi handed him over ultimately to the KGB. But what I've seen is the record. He, what he did was uh, he prayed and he didn't realize his cell was bugged. Uh, so you have the whole prayer uh, written down. It's very, very moving. And he knew he was going to die. Uh, he was going to be executed or feared that. And uh, so he says in there that he did not wish to be hanged. He thought the hanging was the worst form of execution. And he appealed to God for help. You know, help me in my time of great need. So it's a very intimate document, um, which, uh, which I got. Of course, had he not been known, I would never have got the document with any name on. But he is known, so I get the document with a name. And ultimately, the Stasi transferred him to the KGB, and the KGB uh, transported him to Moscow, where he was executed. And he was, as the ashes were interred in a, in, in a mass grave, so there will be no, no body will ever be sent back to Germany. Well... I think we can all be, feel grateful that the Stasi is gone. But I think on a more cheery note, we can also all feel grateful that you came here to the Spine Museum to discuss this fascinating, if, if more than a little grim, topic with us. So, Paul Madrell, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.